0: Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 42 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is from 2 Chronicles, chapters 33 through 34, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online as a text or at audible.com if you prefer to listen. Today we cover chapter 23, Good and Evil in a Deadly Struggle. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! All right, you uh, pass them in as fast as you're able, and then we'll turn out the lights. But we only have 30 minutes, and it takes a full 30 minutes to present this, so you'll stay right with me. Um, These are some of the slides you've been asking for since the first of the semester. I'm going to deal directly now with the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Book of Mormon in Isaiah and Zechariah, Ezekiel and um, Jeremiah, that eventually the Jewish people would be called back to their original homeland, and they would there build uh, one of the great world capitals for the millennium. They are now going back with great enthusiasm, but uh, only because of the tradition of their fathers, not because they believe the Bible. And you'll you'll remember that on the 24th of October, 1841, Orson Hyde dedicated this land for the return of the Jews. And the Israeli government has now been interested in having us build a plaque or something over there on the side of the Mount of Olives to commemorate the first American Zionist. That's the way they call, speak of him, the first American Zionist. Now, can we have the lights uh, out, one of you good scholars? I think they're back there by the door. Now, now just to remind ourselves a little bit about uh, the territory, Sea of Galilee and the major, excuse me, Sea of Galilee, and the major residential area of about uh, three to four hundred thousand which is haifa that's their main port you come right on down here to tel aviv where old joppa used to be then you come right up into the mountains into jerusalem dead sea this is called the sinai peninsula this is called the negev which is the desert part of the israeli people this is the country of jordan where many of the refugees settled and then of course cairo And old Thebes down here this is Port Said where the Russians provided the Egyptians with a very elaborate Navy specific or uh, yeah Navy and submarine force capable of blasting to a cinder both Tel Aviv and Haifa, and wiping out about half the population of the territory all right now Ray if you please this is the size of Israel before the 67 war they've now taken over all this territory down to the jordan river all the sinai peninsula but that's only one-tenth the size of utah with three million people living there and these are the famous dates that you all remember 721 uh, of course was when the ten tribes were carried off and uh, 587 to 586 was when the temple was destroyed and the city shattered by the babylonians then they came back and rebuilt their temple and dedicated it in 516 And then they were under various um, uh, countries uh, the Greeks and then the uh, Syrians uh, uh, and so forth but in in, uh, 169 to 167 they won their independence kept it until 63 BC when the Romans took them over and then in 70 AD they rose up again but this time their city was demolished and they were scattered to the four corners of the earth now the refugees um, that began coming back to Palestine did not really begin to come in quantity until about 1903 when a program or persecution in the Russian, Western Russian territory, now Poland, was uh, instigated and that's when Fiddler on the Roof had its uh, inception. And these people then began coming down into this country by hundreds and occasionally by um, thousands, but usually just a trickle. And they came with nothing. They would arrive down there with only a suitcase and the clothes on their backs, most of them refugees. The three million people who have settled there are about 99% refugees. Other Jews will send the money, but they will not go to live there voluntarily. Next one. That's the way they arrive. And the next one. And uh, if they were Orthodox Jews, they would dress like this in their very Sunday best, Otherwise, they would go in their ordinary clothes, and they would go to the Wailing Wall, the only part of the temple foundation left standing. It's part of the temple square, actually. And there they would say their prayers and thank God they were home. And uh, for their relatives who couldn't come, they would write the prayers and stuff them in the cracks of the rocks. And then they would be assigned to one of these little communal farms, where irrigation and lots of hard work gradually permitted some few things to be grown very frugally. Had not they received help from the outside, they could never have survived. And they always had, um, had to build bomb shelters because they were under constant attack. From 1921 on, they were under attack uh, by their Arab neighbors. The Jews thought they could live together binationally, and with a lot of the Arabs, they got along fine. Um, but um, they were bombed and cannonaded so in each area you had your bomb shelters and there's brother lamar barrett showing you what it's like to be an ephraimite israelite and when they went out to farm their land like they did here looking down on the sea of galilee why they farmed with this on their tractors and uh, moshe diane grew up as a boy with plowing and cultivating the fields with a machine gun on his back he's the one night general that you've seen photographs of now these are the water pipes they brought down from up uh, around the Sea of Galilee now these are little auxiliary pipes the big ones that take the water out of the Sea of Galilee are big enough to drive a car through and there are two water lines that carry that water all the way down to the Negev or the southern desert that they really are making blossom as a rose and they've worked terribly hard to achieve this You can uh, hear the kind of houses they have to live in for two or three or four or five years until the government can get them better housing. Uh, It's real pioneering with very few facilities. You just have to make it the best you can. But what's happened there since I first went in 1962 is almost unbelievable. They've planted a hundred million trees. They have medical resources in excess of any other place in the whole world. They're not a wealthy people. They keep uh, uh, their it's a modest standard of living but everybody is getting along that's the main thing because everybody is working and at five o'clock in the afternoon you have to take put on coveralls no matter what your job is and go up and help um, uh, build up the terraces along the sides of the hill so they will no longer erode and so they can plant vineyards and trees and have them remain there and you can see what it's like to break up this raw sod on this out here on this desert this is not easy living Finally, they get one of these little green plots out in the middle of nowhere, and they talk and love and express affection to those little plants like they were human beings. It's just amazing. They go out there, and they pour little bits of water on them and and cultivate them and pat the dirt all around them, anything to get them to come up out of the ground. And this will give you an idea how the water resources are provided down on the desert. Here are the big pipes that you can drive a car through. They come down all the way down here onto the desert, and then the Jordanians have an open canal that came down this way. They would not allow the Israelis to take any water out of the Jordan River and cut across here. You see, that was their territory until '67, And they've objected to it since then, so they still take it out of the Sea of Galilee, over on the Israeli side. Now in 1948, I should give you this history. The Balfour Declaration by the British allowed the Jews to begin settling back in this country, providing they would buy the land. They couldn't take it away from anybody, and they didn't want to. Uh, beginning in 1917, they were allowed to go back, and they bought up a lot of the swamp land that Arabs sold to them very expensively because they knew they wanted to come back. Then Hajime, one of the religious leaders among the Arabs, got them stirred up and got them to thinking the Jews would, go, would destroy their Dome of the Rock. So they began rioting. They destroyed the Jewish synagogues near the temple block and there was rioting off and on until World War II. Then Hajimin went to Berlin and broadcast to the Arab countries and got them to remain neutral, if not pro-Nazi, throughout most of the war. Then toward the end of the war they joined the Allied side in order to qualify for membership in the United Nations. The Israelis, on the other hand, had joined from the very beginning in massive quantity in the effort to liberate their relatives from the uh, ghettos and slave labor camps of Hitler so when the war was over they thought they were going to get an opportunity to bring their relatives out of the concentrate camps down to Israel and to their amazement Winston Churchill was knocked out of office and the new Socialist Labor Party would not allow them to bring any more immigrants in as a result the Israelis um, began to retaliate with sabotage of the British um, oil lines etc and finally, by 1947, the British said, we've had it. We've been in charge ever since World War I in this territory. We don't want to be in charge anymore. United Nations take it over. And the United Nations decided to divide the land and um, allow the western portion to be areas where the Jews could settle, even though the Arab population was three times greater than the Jews. And then the Jews couldn't settle anywhere else. And the Jews said they'd accept that. And as of May the 15th, 1948, they declared themselves an independent nation with the Arabs outnumbering them three to one in the territory. And they said, we'll all be represented in the Knesset or the Parliament. We can live along, uh, and get along together. We accept that. The Arabs said, we do not accept it. And six Arab nations declared war on I- Israel. The United States abandoned Israel. Britain abandoned Israel. The United Nations abandoned Israel. And, and the Arab na- armies moved in on Israel and everybody thought they would be demolished. Here is one of the tanks that moved in on Israel. Six of them came into one village and the Israelis had nothing to fight with except handguns and anything they could provide. This is the man who as a boy stopped this tank in 1948 with a two-quart bottle of gasoline. They used what we now call Molotov cocktails to stop all six tanks, burned them up and saved the village. And as a result, the Israelis not only held, but within a month, they were beginning to get tanks and planes and heavy equipment, and they they were able to win uh, or hold all their territory. They did lose Jerusalem, which was supposed to have remained an international city, but they held everything else, and the Arab nations then said, let's have an armistice. Well, as soon as that occurred, um, the Israelis said, Uh, What about your refugees? Now, the Arab leaders had induced a million of the Arabs to leave Israel and go over to the Arab countries until the war was over because they were going to drive the Jews out completely. And here were a million Arabs now that had their homes in Israel and were over in the other countries. And the Jews said, we'll allow them to come back if you'll just sign a permanent peace treaty and guarantee our borders so we won't be attacked again. The Arab leaders said, nothing doing. We're going to drive you into the sea. The Jews said, well, then we can't allow these people to come back until peace is established. And so these refugees were caught over in neighboring Arab countries where they were not allowed to buy land or become citizens or enter into business and were forced into uh, concentration camps where they were held for about 19 years. After the um, 1948 war, the United Nations took over and set up a no-man's land between Jordan and Israel and between Egypt and Israel. Here's the United Nations uh, plaque, and they would have these little uh, bastions of concrete indicating that you were in the no-man's-land area to, to keep the nations apart. Now, here were the refugees over in Arab territory, and instead of their brethren taking care of them, they were forced into these concentration camps where they have ever since remained. One of the heartbreak stories of that war. The Israelis tried to get the Arab nations to cooperate in putting the refugees down in the uh, the newly opened up uh, desert country that was getting water now. But the Arab country said, no, we're eventually driving you out of Israel, and they will then go back to their own homes. The Jews then said, well, let the United Nations come in and assess a value on their property. We'll pay for it. If you're not going to give us peace, we can't let them come back. There are more people, more of them than there are of us at the moment. 1948, there were only half a million Jews, and there were... This would be a, over a million arabs coming back so that remained the situation but they lived in the most pitiful conditions fed by the united nations which meant united states mostly and so israel knowing it would be attacked again began building up its army it was a citizen's army a very universal military highly mobilized army and this these are the israeli soldiers the morale is one of the highest in the world They are paid uh, $10 a month while they're in training. Everybody has to train one month a year. And they bought old American Sherman tanks and put air conditioners in them and refurbished them and got them in the best shape they could. That was an illegal picture, by the way, taken out of the window. (laughs) Then they planted trees, fast-growing trees, over all their roads. In a very short period of time, they can move their military equipment up and down the whole length of the land without anybody being able to detect it from above. And all along the border, they established outposts so that they could be sure that there would be no sneak attacks. And uh, here's Brother Barrett taking a a look at any prospective uh, somebody coming over the hill. One of the machine guns on the border. All right, now this is Haifa. Remember where I told you about Haifa up north, uh, up near Carmel Mountain? Okay, that's a beautiful city. And we're up on Mount Carmel where Elijah had fire come down from heaven, looking down on this beautiful port. Okay, next. This is their grain elevators. Everything is the most modern that they can build. And I wanted to show you this picture. Let's see, we're a little bit off. Apparently, I didn't quite go in there. I I put this in here so that you could see these PT boats. Eight of them were ordered from France. They were paid for, and then France got angry at Israel for some reason and said, we're not going to deliver them. They woke up one morning, and all eight were gone. (laughs) And here they are, down in Israel. (laughs) okay and now we can push it back this is mount carmel where elijah called down fire from heaven and this is the way it'll look next month when we go over in april and there's a a view from the air of tel aviv 400,000 population taken right out of the sand dunes there along the coast and now a very modern popular beautiful city and there's another there's the sea coast and now all this has changed There's a beautiful Hilton Hotel here and the Intercontinental Hotel and the Sheraton, they're all along here. And the one that we'll be in is just a little bit further down. Uh, Lovely beaches, It's, it's a beautiful city. And now we're moving up to the third population center, which is the capital city of Jerusalem. The sun is just beginning to come up and has just touched the top of the gold dome of the rock. Here are the old walls that were built in the 16th century over the original walls of Jerusalem. They go clear down here, on up the other side. Now the daylight has come. You can see the walls a little better. You can see the Dome of the Rock. This is a mosque, which was burned down by a Christian uh, Australian about five or six years ago that caused so much consternation. All this end of it was burned and destroyed. And uh, Othel, you remember the city of David I told you about that came down kind of like a piece of pie from... um, Uh, The a mountain from the temple mountain it starts right here then it goes off in kind of a pie shape joined right to this um, southern side of temple block now we're going to take a look at the inside of the dome of the rock you can't tell it from this picture but this is probably the second most beautiful uh, building in the entire world the taj mahal being number one it was built over this spot because this is where muhammad is supposed to have ascended to heaven on a white horse and received his religion from adam and moses and jesus and the others jesus being considered a prophet this is also the rock which was supposed to have been in the holy of holies of the temple and uh, where abraham is supposed to have sacrificed isaac the arabs incidentally said it was ishmael it was ishmael that's kind of interesting okay now i'm going back to the dome of the rock so i can take you right over here i want to get you up on top of that building and look right across those domes right there over to the mount of Olives. You see, there's the Temple Square. We're looking west. And there's Kidron, Brook Kidron. And right up here on the other side to the east is Mount of Olivet. And um, see, now we're looking across that dome. And we're looking right across here. Now, that's the northern end of the Mount of Olives. We're looking east now. And that's the northern end of it. These are the big new high-rise apartments they built on the part of it that's called Mount Scopus. And it was there the Romans had their main camp in 70 AD when they killed hundreds of thousands of the Jews in Jerusalem and, and took the rest of them to Rome and elsewhere for gladiator fights, etc. Now we're gonna go right along the edge of the Mount of Olives over to where Orson Hyde dedicated this land for the return of the Jews. Now you see, we've come right along the mountain, and now you're seeing the rest of the mountain. And uh, we're looking right down at the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's Temple Bl- the temple squares up here, you see. And we're looking down into Brook Kidron, which is very deep, And up this mountain, which is the highest mountain in the vicinity. Now, here are the Roman roads. Jesus went along this road. They've never been changed. That's the Roman road that went over the mountain. This is the Roman road that went around the mountain. And he used both of them. Bethany is just on the other side. So is Bethpage, from which he rode the little burro in for Palm Sunday, remember. Now we're getting a little closer to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we're right on it and uh, the other pictures from up on that side there are the trees the oldest that are on the Mount of uh, the Mount of Olivet and you see one of the old one now that that trees about uh, eight feet across as 2,000 years old and it believed to have been alive when Jesus was there and this is the garden tomb which we think is the tomb very likely where Jesus was buried nobody knows for sure but there is a mountain right up above this tomb uh, where the water has over the centuries washed out holes and it gives you the impression of the eyes and nose and mouth of a skull And he was crucified on a mountain which was called Calvary or Golgotha one being Greek and the other Latin for skull It would accommodate six bodies, but only one was ever prepared and actually used and you can see the little trough here in front then a piece of a big round stone. You used to have a big round stone that would roll over the entrance to the cave along that trough. When it says they rolled a stone, it doesn't mean they just rolled a great big huge boulder like Ye, you know. It means that it was like a millstone. It was round and you just roll it over the opening. And then there's up north, that's the Sea of Galilee. And when we were there, uh, the first few times, the Assyrians were up here with their cannons Uh, knocking out any boat that went out on the water for fishing or any other purposes so that nobody was able to go out on the Sea of Galilee in those days. And this shows you the Golan Heights right above the Sea of Galilee, just salt and peppered with cannons, which would, uh, contrary to the peace treaty and the United Nations and everything else, would constantly shoot over into this area. And in the 67 war, the Israeli troops went right up the face of these cliffs And used hand grenades and TNT and other things and bombed out every single installation and captured the Golan Heights Now there's the Jordan River as the water comes out of the Sea of Galilee and flows south at this point It's about 600 feet below sea level At the other end you have the Dead Sea which is uh, 1300 feet below sea level and then it goes down another 13 to 1500 feet to the bottom and up here on the heights where we are where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found And this is the city of Nazareth. I just threw that in just for as a matter of interest so you can see how deep the valley was. Mary and Joseph lived down in the older homes down here. When Jesus went into the synagogue and read the scripture in Isaiah which said uh, what the Messiah would do and then announced to them that he was the Messiah, they took him up the top of one of these cliffs up here and went to throw him off and the Spirit took him away and nobody knew what happened to him. He ended up in Capernaum over on the Sea of Galilee. And now the war of 67... Jerusalem, Haifa, Tel Aviv, Cairo all this belonged to Egypt. Egypt moved in with, with 900 tanks around here and an infantry three times stronger than that of the Israelis. There, they had three times as many uh, planes and they were all ready to attack on the morning of the 5th of June 1967. As a result, Moshe Dayan, the one-eyed general who had become the Minister of Defense, ordered the frogmen to go out onto the mediterranean and stay out of sight on sunday night and then early on on monday morning before the arabs had attacked these frogmen went in and completely sabotaged the russian-built fleet that was going to come in and burn down uh, both uh, tel aviv and haifa then at two o'clock in the morning while it was still dark the planes took off some of them went way out over the mediterranean and came in from this direction around toward cairo it's right here. Yeah, here it is, right here, toward Cairo. Now, as they came in from this direction toward Cairo, they stayed very close to the ground until they were um, about three minutes away from their target. And then they would come up so that the radar would pick them up. And that gave the Arabs a chance, to, or the Egyptians a chance, to get out to their planes and start them. It's five minutes before a jet can take off. By that time, the missiles had been released from the Israeli planes. Each missile being attracted by heat (laughs) and so um, about 80 to 85 percent of all the Egyptian planes were destroyed on the ground and immediately the Israeli jets had total control of the sky and the war was actually over by morning from then on there was a lot of fighting but actually it was just a question of time now the tanks began their big war on the Gaza Strip, where the big Russian tanks had been lined up all along here, and had it not been for the planes coming back and bombing those big Russian tanks, the old American Shermans could never have beaten them. As it turned out, General Tao went along the Mediterranean, ran into real trouble right here, uh, another one went in about right here, ran into trouble, and good old General Yofi. he started here, and he was the first one to reach the Suez. And the orders were to seal off the desert so they could not retreat out and the Israelis could destroy two billion dollars worth of Russian armament that was on this desert so everybody's fighting like everything here and all of a sudden they get a radio communication that says request permission to wash feet in Suez Canal I couldn't believe it I've flown over that territory many times you can't get across it with half tracks and jeeps some of those canyons are a thousand feet deep and how he got across I just cannot imagine Neither could the Arabs. And uh, (laughs) and when he got there, they began sealing off all of the three main passes so that there could be no escape for this equipment. And then the Israeli jets closed in on this equipment to either captured or destroyed. And now you'll see what happened. Now, this is Cairo, where the uh, war was launched on. Beautiful city of four million people. This is the city of Abraham, of um, Joseph and of Moses. So when, you, when we go to Egypt, we have a great time down there to remind ourselves all about these events. Right? And these are the Egyptian troops. They're a proud people, but fighting Israelis has never been their particular bag. <laughs> <laughs> and in order for the Israelis to be sure that nobody snuck over during the night with a bunch of tanks, every 24 hours they disc uh, the, the entire desert, the whole length of the desert, right next to no man's land. I might run over just a minute and a half or so. It won't be long, and I'll be able to finish it. Okay? Now, the, uh, the war began by closing off the Aqaba Gulf. The Aqaba Gulf, the Straits of Tehran down here, is the area through which 90% of all of the oil comes up to Israel. And when that was closed by the Egyptians, that was when the shooting war started. And now they've only got about six weeks, and Israel won't be able to fly a plane or anything else. Its oil will all be gone. So they had to respond, and here's what they did. Uh-oh. this is just mount sinai got thrown in hit the next two fast top of mount sinai that was a wonderful place to bring three million people that's the only oasis in the whole territory that's where we think they can okay now that's the cairo airport as it looks today when i saw just before the 67 war it was covered with russian planes wingtip to wingtip all of them were destroyed on the ground practically now look what they have see those little holes that's where they put their fighter planes back in there <laughs> No planes out in the open, you notice. Okay. Now, what they would do out on the desert is to, to pick out a lead tank. They would blow it up, and then all the other men who were in the tanks, in the other tanks, would say, uh-oh, he's circling. So they'd say, up with the hatch, out, men, out. We'll be the next one to get it. So they would abandon a whole uh, group of tanks, and the next picture, our students, uh, say, that's what would happen. Say they'd all take off. They'd leave their tanks, and uh, they'd get over on the other side, and uh, then the, the Jewish jet would, would radio back, and some jeeps and half-tracks would come up with a new crew for the tank, you see, all trained to drive Russian tanks. And they put new fuel in it. They paint the Star of David on the side and put it back into business. By the end of the second day, they had 300 Russian tanks fighting on the side of Israel. <laughs> and those that, wanted to, that, that didn't give up, you see what happened to them. One of our students demonstrate what what it was like. <clears throat> And uh, here's one of the captured tanks. The desert tanks were small, as you can see. The big ones are up on Gaza Strip. And oil oil tanks, the smoke over the Mediterranean, went for two or three or four days from these burning tanks. Only Israel tried to rescue any of those on the desert. Nasser did not attempt to rescue anybody at all. The Red Cross pleaded with him to send somebody out. As a result, many, many died out on the desert of thirst, etc. And some of the natives collected a lot of their skulls together. And there were uh, acres and acres of captured Russian equipment. And uh, when some of our students wanted to go down with Brother Barrett to see the Straits of Tehran, they would only let him go down if there was someone on each bus who could fire a machine gun. And so Brother Barrett uh, assured them he could qualify, and and he did it. And that's what they found down there. That's what the Israelis had done to the cannons that started this war by closing the Straits of of Tehran. Now they got back to Jerusalem and here's the old Wailing Wall, uh, now cleared away from all of the houses that have been built around there. Now you get a real access to the old Herodian wall that held up the Temple Square. And here's where the massive uh, services are held by the Jews. Now when I went there earlier, the Arabs, when the Arabs were in charge of this, uh, the Jordanians had built all kinds of houses around here and they were the houses of prostitution for Jerusalem. And when we would come down the street we'd go to this little place that was open at that time which was all of the waiting wall that was open and one of my tours I lost two of my old timers and um, one man 75 the other about 70 I went back I couldn't figure out what happened to them and um, finally I heard their voices over a wall and I opened a little garden gate and looked in there one of them says brother Scott come on in here these women invited us in and they're so friendly I said, brethren, the tour is waiting, and we departed. Okay. (laughs) Here's one of the Israeli soldiers, and you see the phylacteries that he has around, the the word of God wrapped around his arm, close to his heart, and one on his head the scriptures contained in that little box strapped to his head, and they put those on during periods of prayer against the wailing wall. And uh, here's where I lost my good friend, Dr. Matter, who was in charge of the garden tomb, uh, during the day and night fighting for Jerusalem, the Israeli troops came in, and the Arabs had taken off their uniforms and had uh, just ordinary black and white pajamas that they were on the streets over there. And uh, then after the Israelis had passed by, they'd go after their machine guns and shoot them in the back. So by morning, Dr. Matter, whose family had slept in the tomb during the night, heard some knocks on the garden gate door, Went, opened it, and here were three Israeli soldiers. He's an Armenian in striped... Pajamas. He said to the soldiers, Shalom, Shalom, they shot him on the spot. And he's buried just right near here. We really miss him when we go over there. Great man, a wonderful Christian. Now, up on top of the Golan Heights, uh, the Israelis were stopped. Moshe Dayan said, do not go on to Damascus in Syria, and don't go over on to Cairo. We don't want to capture Egypt, we don't want to capture Syria. We just want to capture enough territory to protect our borders. And the disappointed troops, they were all ready to go. Their morale was high. They captured the Golan Heights, which nobody said they could capture. They're up now on the heights, and they're headed straight for Damascus. Moshe Dayan said, halt. So they halted, put up a pole, put a burned-out Syrian jeep up on top of it, and wrote down at the bottom, to Damascus with love. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much.